Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. My friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. We are here in the fourth season of the Being Known Podcast. This is episode eight. And if you are a regular listener, you know that we have been talking about trauma this whole season. And I am... um, I'm really interested in today's episode, and I'm I'm excited to learn a lot about something that I don't think a lot of us realize. The title of this episode is To the Third and Fourth Generation, and I think that needs an explanation in itself, Kurt. So some of our listeners might be familiar with having heard or read or having heard it read from the Old Testament. A number of, on a number of different occasions, there's more than one passage to this account, but I'll just read one of them. This comes from the book of Numbers, the 14th chapter and the 18th verse, where Moses, or uh, whoever's writing for Moses, we, writes the following, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And today we're here to talk about generational trauma and how that makes its way, how trauma makes its way down the line ancestrally, as it were, from one generation to another, and we're going to talk about a number of different ways in which that happens. Um, But as we do, I want to invite us to consider that, you know, when we, when before uh, in, in other seasons, we've talked about the mind, we've talked about what a mind that is flourishing looks like, and we talk about this notion that the mind is both an embodied and relational process. And I want us to hold that uh, kind of before us today as we talk about this notion, because we often think that if my mind has been traumatized, if my body has been traumatized, that trauma as I experience it is something that I personally am aware of. I don't expect that it would have happened outside of my conscious awareness or outside of my own personal experience. I don't think of trauma as something having been given something that has been given to me kind of non-consciously or without my awareness of this. But we have to recognize that to the degree that our mind is both embodied and relational, we also remember that none of us came into the world on our own. We came into the world, our, uh, our arrival is a gift to us from someone else. We didn't orchestrate our own arrival. We didn't orchestrate our own, I mean, heavens to know, heaven best, like, like when, in my case, like my, I, I mean, I didn't orchestrate it. My parents, they, heck, they didn't even know that they were orchestrating it at the time. But, you know, I mean, they knew what they were doing, but they didn't know they were orchestrating me. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. You know, you're, you're well, you 45 often- and 19. Yeah, you know, you you've you've, that? you've often said that that our stories uh, are being written started being written before we were even able to write them ourselves, or being written by others before they started. To be. And this this idea of you know, where where we're going today, I think, really sheds a new light on that for me. The right. the idea of uh, epigenetics, right. And so what we what we're reading in this text, the scriptural text, is really saying that things that parents do have downstream, downstream implications. Uh, 
And I think it's really, it's, it's, it, over the course of our time today, I, I want us really to pay attention to the entire verse because we can get so caught up with the second half of the verse, which says that he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished and he punishes the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. We can pay so much attention to the darker side of what happens in our lives generationally that we forget the first sentence in the verse. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. And we're going to come back to that again as well. But one of the first places that we can turn when it comes to this question of epigenetics is, I mean, when it comes to this question of generational trauma, is this scientific field of study called epigenetics. Now, what do we mean by that? Uh, We've all, you're familiar with the term genetics. It talks about our chromosomes, the genes that we have. We have 23 pairs of chromosomes, and there are different ways in which the genes on those chromosomes work. In fact, we would say that a large proportion of the gene code that we have in our pairs of chromosomes, all of our pairs of chromosomes, the, the, the vast majority of the gene code itself is actually more uh, in charge of regulating the genes that actually operate for us. And so there are certain genes that are necessary to turn other genes on and off. On top of this, then, we have what we call epigenetics. The prefix epi, E-P-I, refers to being on top of something, hovering above. And that's largely what we're referring to here, that there are ways in which we have other parts of the gene code that hover above and turn on or turn off other parts of the gene code that are the actively engaged genetic portion that not just give us our eye color or our height or, you know, what uh, our particular uh, response to infection might be, but it also is in charge of things like how we respond to anxiety. You know, how much of our stress hormone is released when we find that we are under duress. All these kinds of things are genetically predisposed And what we come to find out is that if I come into the world, and let's say, uh, and I'll talk about this in just a moment, if I'm I'm an anxious person, then as it turns out, like, I'm a a pretty anxious guy underneath, like, and I I work really hard to, like, not pay attention to it, and so most people around me wouldn't guess that I am, but I, like, it turns out I probably swim in a river of anxiety that's this undercurrent that's always going on, that I'm working really hard to contain, and I've received that honestly, might even, we might even say genetically from my parents. But if I do the kind of work that I would hope that I could do to regulate that differently, and I change the way that my genes are turned on and off by the work that I do, which is I can do psychotherapy work, I might even take medication, or if I, if I do those kinds of things, I can regulate my genetics in such a way that the part of my genes that are in charge of the genes that regulate my anxiety, can, we might say, downregulate those genes such that I become less anxious. And if that's the case, when I have children, the genes that they receive from me will now be different than the ones that I actually receive from my mom. Now, my mom and my dad, now, not because the genetic code is any different, but because which genes and how they are turned on or turned off because of what we do behaviorally to regulate the genetic expression of those genes that are actually in charge of doing the expressing. Now, the opposite is equally true. I could 
come into the world as a rather sanguine person and have some kind of traumatic event happen to me, and it turns on those gene codes such that I'm now much more anxious than I used to be. But what this means often, though, is in our situation today, we are really talking about how something that happened to someone two, three, four generations ago, if it wasn't resolved, can lead to them passing on those traits to the next generation and the next and the next and so forth and so on. And so when we read in the Numbers text that God punishes the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation, we're not really talking about in that text that God is actively, angrily punishing people any more than he is actively cursing in anger and fury Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. It's more an announcement of the way the world is now going to be. God didn't say, for instance, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I will kill you. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. He's really just predicting the future. He's really just talking about what is going to happen to us given the way he has made the world, which is important because it really highlights the role that we play in each other's lives. It highlights that what I do now has impact on children that I will never know, but that will be born in my lineage. And it also means that there's unfinished business that might have happened two, three, four generations ago that I also am the recipient of. The power of epigenetics is important because as we learn about how generations pass things on to one another, we can start to feel kind of overwhelmed and we can start to feel rather discouraged. But there's really good news that's coming because of the capacity for the brain to change, our neuroplastic changes, and the way that we can turn genes on and off despite our feeling so vulnerable with that. You know, uh, one example of this, I just I take a page out of my own story. I may have talked a little bit about this on past episodes. Each of my parents had their own particular story that was uh, um, hard in their own particular ways. Uh, my, my mom was the fourth of four kids, and uh, her mother died when my mom was three, mm. and her mom died from complications due to an ectopic pregnancy. She had a much older firstborn brother, and then an older sister, and then a brother who was older than her, but close to her in age. And when my mom's mom died, which of course is bad enough as it is, when my mom was three, she loses her mother. Her father, oddly enough, who was well-educated, he was the superintendent of all the schools of the county, her father was unable to find a way to parent the children. He now has four kids, the youngest of whom is three, my mom. And my mom and her siblings are kind of farmed out hmm. to other people. And sometimes they were together as a twosome or threesome, but my mom was never really with any of her siblings after that, even though they all lived in and around the same area, which as I think back about it now, I'm thinking like, what the heck? Yeah. How do you not find a way to keep your kids together? Now, my, and my mom's story, so then was, so she loses her mom at age three, and then she is kind of shuttled from home to home, not with a great deal of frequency, but eventually 
she, I mean, she, as, as she, my mom who passed away now 17 years ago at age 86, I remember these stories that she would tell that, you know, she never really felt comfortable until she landed in one home where she had a particular aunt who she knew loved her dearly. But the challenge there was that her aunt herself had um, a mental illness of some ilk and was later, you know, my mom would talk about it as being bipolar disorder. But the problem was is that on occasion, with no explanation to my mom, my aunt would be taken to the psychiatric hospital where she would stay for weeks on end. And so the one attachment figure that my mom had would just disappear and then perhaps come back. And sometimes she was able to be there and sometimes like present with her emotions. Sometimes she wasn't able to be. And this is, this is the story of how my mom is growing up. But then further, her oldest brother, eventually, you know, you think like mom, my, my mom lost her mother when she was three, but all the other three kids also lost their mom. And then they kind of like lost their family. And after that, her oldest brother, when he was in his 40s, 30s or 40s, took his own life. And he was found hanging by his son. Now, to make matters even worse, 40 years later, that same son who found his dad repeated that event. Now, my mother and her siblings ended up living in different parts of Ohio and Michigan. And as I was growing up, they had very infrequent contact with each other. And I'm left wondering, like, what happened to my mother's mother, to my mother's father? What happened to them even before they were in this situation? This trickle down. So it gets to me. And then I also have my dad, who's, who's the first of three kids, who worked hard all of his life, died at age 62 of heart disease, was, uh, you know, he volunteered for the, you know, he volunteered for the army in World War II, but was disallowed, which is a pretty shaming thing for him, like disallowed on medical reasons for, you know, for joining the army. He had a sister who went to college. He had a brother who was a decorated veteran of World War II. My dad's mom, my grandmother, uh, had a history of depression for which she received fairly significant treatment, ECT. And so there's this stuff that happens, right? And my dad is this loving, kind, uh, deeply resourceful and affectionate man, but who you didn't want to cross him. You didn't want to get, you didn't want, you didn't want to piss him off. And uh, he was not a guy who ever really was curious about the things that were important to me. It doesn't make him a bad guy. He wasn't, he wasn't uninterested in me as a person, but like this wasn't a guy who was aware of like the importance of having conversations with your kids of, of the nature that I would have been interested in him having. I say all this to say, um, I'm a guy who like the, the, those are the stories that come to me. And now I'm a guy who finds myself at 59, like waking up to like the awareness of how anxious I am. Now, I'm not anxious in ways that keep me from living life, but that's because I've spent a lifetime working really, really hard to keep my anxiety at bay. I mean, I have been sandbagging the river for a long time. And I'm aware that there are elements of trauma that have taken place in my family generations ago that are... uh, I think showing up in me. 
Is it helpful for you to know that, to know that, <clears throat> for Kurt, is it helpful for you to know that, you know, the anxiety that you feel, part of it, least of it, uh, part of it at least, was there from generations before you? You know, it, it does make a difference because I think in some respects, I'm otherwise left wondering, like, what's wrong with me? Yeah. You know, if, if, I, if I look at my life, and, and, and this was the other thing, and we're, we're going to talk about this in just a few moments, right? Apart from the story that I've just told, apart from my hearing these facts on rare occasion, my family never talked about any of this stuff. Right. There was no working it out. There was no resolution. There was no, you know, I... I, 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 I didn't ask the question of like, gosh, mom, why do you never see your two remaining siblings that often? Like, why are, like, why is everybody so separate? I wasn't ever old enough or curious or able to ask like, what happened to your family? What was like, what was up with your dad such that like, he didn't keep you kids together? Like, what's up with that? Right. And that story was never talked about. It was never talked about with, with me that my, my father's mother like had depression in the way that she did. Like it, we never, th- there was never any sense of like this being, th- this, is, this is who we are and this is why, this is what's happened to us. I can't imagine, I mean, my, my uncle, my, my father's brother uh, won two bronze stars in World War II. And you don't get bronze stars no. for, you know, for, for, for cleaning the latrine. I can't imagine. And, and, he, and he would have been one of those, uh, he would have been uh, one of what we call the greatest generation. He would have been one of those kind of prime classic examples of those who came home and warm and funny and affectionate and all the things and never talked about any of what happened. Like, what happened? Yeah. Right. Yeah. My wife has a, uh, we, her, her father was a pharmacist and, uh, in the Vietnam war, he was a medic and, mm. Mm. uh, mm. up until really the last, like they never, t- he never talked about it and she didn't really h- hear many of those stories until relatively recently where, you know, he was on the front line is what a mm. medic was. Right. I mean, you can imagine mm. the mm. the things that, and he, he came back. You know, a different person, you know, yeah. and, and uh, it just is, um, it feels like generationally, that generation, and my dad certainly is is uh, one of those that you don't hear any of it. You don't, you know, you don't, they don't, ta- they never talked about any of it. And, it, and that's not good. Right. I mean, that's not good. Right. We, um. Uh, we, I, I sometimes talk with folks about this, about the power of the delusion of separation, this sense that if I don't talk about it, if I keep Mm. this thing separate from me, like there's, there is, there is power, there is power that gets wielded in that, in the sense that I can protect myself for a certain period of time. You know, it wasn't until I wrote the first, my first book, Anatomy of the Soul, like, you know, kind of, this is coming out 17 years ago when I, I mean, that's when I wrote the book, but that my first encounter with interpersonal neurobiology and starting to really wade into these kinds of things about memory and you know attachment and epigenetics and all these kinds of things and considering all that my mom went through as a function you know functional she grew up as an functionally grew up as an orphan like the impact that this has downstream 
we don't recognize how powerful this can be. And so my mom is doing the best that she can to just like survive her life. And my dad is doing the best he can to survive his life. And human beings are extraordinary in their capacity to live well in their communities, despite the fact that they have, you know, you know, they've got the Hoover Dam and Lake Mead right. is sitting behind it. Right. Often in terms of not just their own personal experience of trauma, but their experience of what they carry that belong to their parents and their parents' parents and so forth and so on. And so we often depend upon this delusion. We depend upon telling a story in which I'm just living my life here, growing up in Mount Pleasant, Ohio, without having an awareness that my, my grandmother, who I never knew, who died when my mother was three, the loss of her is impacting me in my mom's anxiety and my mom's actions toward me that continue to engender anxiety in me because now I'm worried that she's not going to be okay. And so I end up doing a lot of work to make sure she's okay. Yeah. That only reinforces the anxiety that I have that this is my job and my job is to make sure that everybody in the room is okay. You know, so my, like my psychiatric training started when I was really young. And what that means, though, is that you work really, really hard to contain your own anxiety that you're starting to feel in response to other people's anxiety that is coming to them because of the losses that they've experienced, but that they're not even really aware of. They're not like, yes, they're aware that they have a loss, but they're not aware that like that loss is a big reason as to why they're anxious right now. And I think as, as our listeners are with us right now, we, we think about it's possible that your own story is starting to percolate to the top and become curious about your parents and your parents' parents and wondering what happened to them. Not so much what's wrong with them, but what happened to them. What are the stories that we don't know? And again, it's one thing to know facts kind of that just kind of sit out there untethered, like the facts that I knew about my mother's and father's family, but I was never told a story. There was no, no, never was there a story told about how are all these things connecting together? What's, what, like, what, what are the themes? Like, what's behind all of this? None of that really happened. It was just easy for us to empower the delusion that nothing's really there other than these facts that we talk about on occasion in order to protect myself, in order to keep myself from losing my mind, as it often is the case. In today's episode, I want to highlight a particular resource, and we've named this book before. It's The title is It Didn't Start With You, and the author's name is Mark Wallen. Pep, I don't know if you've had the chance to look at I it. I have. It's, a, it, it's yeah. a great work. You you recommended it to me, and um, I think I've shared uh, on a previous episode that I actually listened to the audio book, and it was, it was, it was great, um, really, mm-hmm. really well done. But just the – it was new information to me. Um, really eye-opening, uh, the idea of your DNA literally being infa- uh, impacted by the trauma of past generations and the science behind it. Uh, it's it's mm-hmm. fascinating. Right. And I, I, would, I would commend it because he, you know, I think Wallen doesn't just tell the story of what happens. He also offers a number of really practical exercises in the book that give us, you know, some tactics Mm-hmm. In beginning to address it, and some of the things that uh, that I really like about what what he talks about, there, there, you know, the, one of the things that primary issues that really strikes me is this notion that we receive convictions of words and actions from our ancestors. 
we receive convictions of words and actions from our ancestors. And this whole notion that we can have a core belief, we can have a core set of language, we have a core, this sense that we embody, right? It's not just a, when we say beliefs, I, I tell people, I, th- I think when we, when we use the word believe, we often think of that word in terms of like an abstract cognitive assertion. I believe that the world is round. I believe that three times two is six. But literally what the word means is to be living. If I believe something, is I'm going to live as if this is true. So that when I say like I believe in gravity, I'm not just saying it as an abstraction. I'm saying like I'm an engineer. I build airplanes. I believe I like I'm going to build my airplane with gravity in mind. I'm going to, if I believe in our relationship, I'm going to trust you. That is to believe in that. That's not just an abstraction. I, I just really like, I'm, I'm going to build my airplane with gravity in mind. I mean, it's, I just really love that visual. I, I would hope, I would hope that if you're yeah. going to build an airplane, you would at least under, have a little understanding of gravity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The gravity of the situation. You're yes. absolutely right. Yeah. 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 So, so to, we have these core beliefs. And by this, we don't just mean, and Wallen's not referring to these as core cognitive assertions. These are embodied things that we live out. You know, he he talks about a number of different examples. He gives a number of different examples of people whose stories he's listening to and people who are symptom bearers of things that they like, like, I have no idea where this is coming from, but I've always had this trouble with this particular thing in my life. And as they go back and begin to tell, they, they, they do some research, they go back and start to tell stories of their parents and then their grandparents and maybe even great-grandparents. They discover that there are things that happened one, two, three generations ago that never got resolved. And they essentially are the symptom bearer hmm. of something that is being passed down. And I would say that this is not just passed down in a, just a straightforward genetic way. We don't just do it, well, my genes have it, kind of like my eye color. But our genetics also come accompanied with behaviors. So again, my core belief isn't just what I think. It is how I act. So, you know, I, I have vivid memories of particular nonverbal expressions that my mom would offer to me that... And I mean, without her knowing it, that basically took advantage of me as a listener, asking me to do the work that her husband should have been doing. A certain look on her face, tone of her voice when she's telling a story. And like, I'm like the one guy within a country mile who's willing to listen. Hmm. And I shouldn't be doing this. But there is this felt sense of, oh, I'm being drawn to my mom. I'm being close to my mom. But I'm not being drawn in closeness to my mother because she is primarily taking care of me. I'm being drawn in closeness because I'm taking care of her. And that sets me up to be anxious in a way that is not okay for me to be. And so what does that mean? It sets me up to be anticipating that I can only be close to somebody to the degree that I'm able to take care of you. And the whole notion of actually being taken care of in ways that mattered to me by my mom aren't things that I learn how to expect. I don't learn to anticipate this. And so when they show up, I'm both surprised 
I don't know what to do with and relieved. And also like, well, gosh, when, when might this be taken away? Because closeness depends upon me caring for you. Mm. And this, of course, is not surprising because this is, a, this is a woman who had to make her way on her own. If you're an orphan, you're working really, really hard to manage your own overwhelming anxiety that comes because you've lost a mom and like you don't have much to say. You don't have, you don't have much in the way of anybody bringing comfort to you because of this. And so we receive these convictions and actions from our ancestors, our parents, who received it from their parents. And again, we receive them in language, the words that they use. We receive them in imagery, their nonverbal cues. We receive them in embodiment, right? The very actions that they take. And this all affects our attachment processes, which ground the whole process. This sense of to what degree am I attaching to my parent uh, in a way that is either perhaps insecure and anxious or insecure and avoidant? Ways in which I'm not actually, I'm attaching as a way to be okay in the world, but not in a way wherein which I can mostly be assured that they are taking care of me. It's mostly I'm taking care of me by taking care of them. But I don't know that I'm doing this because what's happening that's in the room right now is the long-term effect of what happened two or three generations ago. You know, sometimes we talk about what happens when, when trauma happens to any of us, let alone what happened two or three generations ago. We talk about a trauma cycle, and we can actually look at, atom, at, at animal models that re- reflect what we are supposed to be able to do Peter Levine, in his wonderful little book called Healing Trauma, it was one of our resources that we talked about at the top of our, at the beginning of our season. He talks about this notion of how if there is an, and we've perhaps talked about this before, that if there is an animal that is a prey to a predator, the predator tries to capture it, the animal isn't killed and isn't harmed, but they may collapse in fear. When that animal kind of comes to, they will necessarily, they will, they will start to shiver uncontrollably. It will shiver because they are, basically their musculoskeletal system is completing the cycle that they needed to enact. They needed to be able to escape and run away from that predator. They were unable to, but now their body is working out all the excess leftover stress. Human beings, when we can't work out the excess stress that we've received from upstream, we become symptomatic. And our symptoms aren't always plain and obvious in connection to whatever happened, but when we begin to talk about our story, and not just my personal story, but what happened to my parents and what happened to my parents' parents, and we begin to make sense of their story, that enables us to make sense of ours. You asked earlier, I, um, I uh, find that in knowing the things that I've come to know about generational trauma and therefore being aware of how what happened to my mom, what happened to my mom's mom and so forth, it it gives me a completely different way of framing my own experience. And when I feel the intensity of things at times, I can be able to say, oh my gosh, well, this actually 
makes sense to me because like I, the reason I feel this intensity is because it's not just about me. It's about something else that has been coming downstream to me. Yeah. The more we are able to identify this and the more I'm actually able even to identify my own personal experience, what my core beliefs are, for instance, in telling my story to someone else who's helping me work this out, the more I give myself the opportunity to actually say like generational trauma gathers steam until we stop the train in its tracks by telling our story more truly to someone else who's helping us make sense of things that, as it turn out, are things that are not just about ourselves, but about others that have come before us. Yeah. I, would, I mean, I, it's, it's so helpful to, uh, to have that perspective, too, to know that, you know, when you're, you, you, instead of looking at yourself and saying, what did I do? What did I do? You know? And, mm-hmm. and at the same time, you know, the idea that we can change those things for generations to come mm-hmm. is really helpful. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that there are other there are other examples beyond you know the ones that we've talked about so far. There are other examples are, are, that 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 are really I think important for us even now in our in our in the story of where we find ourselves as a culture. Um, I remember when I was a resident in Philadelphia. And we uh, took care of a large African American community in our in the, in the work that we did at Temple University Hospital. And I remember, uh, you know, it was it was learning. We, you know, you, you learn all of these epidemiological facts about you know who is more at risk for what, males, females, ethnicities, so forth and so on. And one of the things that would be commonly taught in the medical school classroom, and also in uh, you know, in our residency training, as we were treating people, you know, in, in, the, me- in the medicine clinics, was that African American men, in particular, uh, had a higher rate of hypertension. Uh, they were at a higher risk for hypertension, therefore heart disease, and all the other things that would come from that. And it was so striking. To, it's striking to me now how, because even at the time, I, I, I found myself being curious about how about the fact that it was it was talked about as if it were just some kind of genetic fact. You know, kind of like, well, women are uh, 100% more likely to get pregnant than men. It's a fact. And African-American males are, uh, you know, proportionally far more likely to be to have hypertension than their uh, white male counterparts. You know, uh, I, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to go out to um, Compton, California, and I had a meeting with the the mayor mayor Aja Brown um, of Compton, and we had great great day great conversation and she but one of the things that came up in conversation was she said there have been studies done that um, people that grew up in that community and that they have experienced the same level of PTSD as a soldier that would be coming home from war based on mm-hmm. so many mm-hmm. of the things that were going on in their environment. Right. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, hearing that is, is, it's hard to hear. It's hard to, you know, imagine. Right. Yeah. And, and I like, so I, I, I became, you know, especially then when, when we start, when we started to learn about generational trauma and epigenetics and passing this on, I thought like, well, my goodness, like no wonder African-American males have higher hypertension rates. Right. I mean, given the history, I mean, not just, 
you know, of, you know, let alone the history of, of, of the people who are living right now, but all that they've received for multiple generations. Right. And we, we recognize that, uh, therefore, th- therefore, it's important, I think, for us to recognize that it's not enough for us to say, oh, well, we'll just be more a- attentive to your hypertension, as if somehow, well, we know that you have a higher risk, and so we'll be more attentive to that, as opposed to saying, well, wait a minute, what about all that stress that comes from all the generational trauma? that raises the stress hormone level that raises your blood pressure. Right. This is not a hypertension problem per se. It's like the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. It's a problem, but it's resourced over a long distance. And so I, I, I think I, I once again want to say that, you know, we, we can hear these things and we can feel like, oh my gosh, like, now this is starting, like I, I sense some of the things that I feel. I can't explain it. I look around and look, turn, like, look at my mom and my dad or my grandparents. Like, well, maybe it's starting to make sense. But I can still feel pretty overwhelmed because like, what am I supposed to do now? And I, I, want, I, want, oh, I do want to, once again, want to point to Wallen's book. It didn't start with you. I want right. to highly recommend that. I also want to, uh, once again, we come back to this notion that part of the work that we do here in seeking to create beauty and goodness. Part of that is, the, you know, the, what we're really doing is telling the story of the world as truly as God wants us to tell it. And that includes telling the parts of our story that are left yet untold, including the parts of our story that we've been given from our parents and our grandparents. And so the power of presence in stopping this runaway train, this generational train, This brings us back to the first sentence of the 18th verse of Numbers chapter 14, where God reminds us that he's slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. And this point that generational trauma can be healed and we can be places where that can take place. And we don't have to feel like I am responsible for everything that has happened behind me, but that I do not need to continue to carry it all. I'm not responsible for it all, but I don't need to continue to carry it all. And one of the ways that we start this process can lead even to our exercise for the day. One would be when you get some time, just give some reflection to any particular experiences that you find yourself having that seem to not have a fairly straightforward explanation for what's, what's happening here. Am I anxious? Am I sad? Am I, do I have thoughts that come into my head? Do I have things that I feel in my body? Do I have a GI tract problem that doesn't seem to want to go away? Do I have, there's a whole range of things that the human experience can bring to the table that we don't have a clear and ready present explanation for. So the importance, number one, of identifying what is my embodied experience that creates curiosity for me. And then we talk about wanting to complete what is needed, that notion that when an animal is traumatized but is in a position that it can't move, it eventually will want to move and it will work that out, as we talked about earlier. Completing what is needed includes our telling our story to someone else, being curious with someone else, having someone else be curious with us about the nature of what it is that we are experiencing. In that process, we develop earned secure attachment this process of telling our story more truly, including what happened to my parents, what happened to my grandparents that had been bequeathed to me in ways that I haven't seen coming. 
And so the need for us to actually be curious about our family tree, our family history, where have there been things that have happened, where, what are the stories that we've heard about that, but that nobody talks about, kind of like in my, in my family. Like you grow up and you're like, like they're, they're, just, they're just told the way that they're told and nobody knows anything different until later. And you're like, how did we not talk about my uncle hanging himself? Like how, did, how was that, like how is that possible? You don't talk about this. And this process of telling our story more fully and more truly eventually leads to this earned, secure attachment that we return to when we talk about being seen, soothed, safe, secure. Remember, one of the things that trauma does, we've said that it shatters our imaginative capacity to perceive a future of hope. I can become so overwhelmed that I can't imagine a future that is hopeful. But we want to say that in the telling of our generational stories, we can actually not just change our experience, but we change the genetic onloading that's taking place in our own lives, and we can change, therefore, what we give to those that are coming after us. The last thing that we would say as part of this exercise to just bear in mind, like so we're, we're paying attention to what my embodied experience is. What are the places that somehow don't make sense? Number one. Number two, we want to be curious about what do I need to do to complete this cycle? What do I need to do to tell that story more fully? Which necessarily, as we frequently do, comes back to who are the people that I'm telling this story to that are helping me develop an earned secure attachment in completing the cycle of this story being told. And then recognizing that all of this necessarily most effectively and most uh, healingly, if that's a word. I, I like it. Well, then it's a done deal. Yep. Healingly. It uh, takes place in a community in which we recognize that the telling of our story in a new way, in a truer way, takes place over a long period of time. Now, you'll read in Wallen's book stories of how people tell, their, tell some of their stories for the very first time and their symptoms evaporate. And that takes place for many people, but for many people, it is a... You know, evaporation doesn't happen like quickly. It happens over a long period of time. But the very fact that we can be aware that my experience isn't just about me in and of itself goes no small way in helping that healing process to move forward. And so at the end of the day, we remember that God is aware of the creation that he's made And we are interconnected enough with each other that when I do things, it's going to have implication one way or the other for people that are related to me downstream, even people that aren't born yet. And so it is a warning. It is an, you know, it's God sending an alert to say like, Kurt, Pepper, Amy, like your lives really matter. And they matter perhaps even more than you know. But know that I am in the business of forgiveness. I am in the business not of bringing my anger to kill you. I am in the business of healing for I am that kind of a God. And I'm not even going to let the embedded, durable, long-standing history of trauma within your family keep me from bringing my kingdom into the light. And that's pretty good news. It's very good news. Yeah, that's great. The only the one thing that I would just say is if you have for me um, I'm fortunate in that I my my mom is still here um, mm-hmm. with us she's she's and and her 
sisters are, are still here. And it's a generation that, you know, I just want to encourage people that if you have people mm. that are people that came before you that are still around, be curious with them, mm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, gaze, dwell, and inquire mm. with them mm. Mm. and and learn the things about them and their stories. Find out what their, ask them what their story is, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it. so many great things can come out of that, you know. It's it just mm-hmm. the, 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 the interpersonal connection with you, with them, but then also having a better understanding of some of the things that happened bef- before you and came before you, right. I think is, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have those people in your life, go, go after it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank right. you, Kurt. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Pat. Great to be with you today. Uh, YouTube folks, stick around. Amy's here with us, uh, and we'll be she'll be joining us just just a second. Very good. See you. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well. Be now.